Welcome to the Strata Leadership Show, a podcast designed to help you gain clarity, lead effectively, and drive results for yourself, your team, and your organization. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Miller. Today we have someone that I uh, have known for a number of years and someone that I just have a ton of respect for. He's one of my best friends. He is someone who has made a difference really anywhere he goes as a leader. He's a person who loves his kids and just really wants to make the world a better place. Today, our guest is James Bennett. James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks for having me. So James is one of the reasons why I do executive coaching. I had met James when he uh, was working with a company based out of Oklahoma City, and I was doing a program with them. And then he came up to me after the program and he said, I want to talk to you about executive coaching. He said, I'd like for you to be my coach. And at the time, I I really wasn't doing a lot of coaching. I I was doing some, but it wasn't something I really was pursuing at the time. And the way that he said it, it was one of those things where he wasn't, I don't think he was actually asking. I think he was informing me that I was going to be his coach. And that began a journey with him that has been one that has been phenomenal. The type of leader that uh, he is and the type of person that he is, it's been one of the great reasons why I love coaching. But James, when you think about leadership and you think about the people who impacted your life as a leader, who would you say is someone who made an impact on you as a leader. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. And thanks for that introduction. I do remember just backing up us talking about you, know, you coaching me. It was at after after breakfast. And and you're right, I'm usually not that direct, but I do remember saying, you know, no, you're gonna be my coach. And and you said, Well, I don't, you know, we do all kinds of things. I don't really do that. Specifically, I said, No, 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 you're 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 gonna do this and this is gonna work out great. So uh, that was uh, an impactful moment for me in the, the several years where you were coaching me it was was very helpful and, and I'll always remember that. So getting Nathan on your question. So thank thank you for the thank you for being insistent. It, it, I and really remember do. and remember you offered to give me like an eighth royalty of all your coaching revenues from the rest of your life. So, <laughs> that, I, I don't think that was on paper. I don't think that don't, actually happened. Don't forget about Go that. Go ahead. So so who is someone that you would look back on uh, positive, negative, but people who have helped shape you as a leader? Yeah, I'd say two things. I'm glad you said positive and negative. You know, my grandfather was a big impact on my life. I spent a lot of summers, almost every summer with him up in the Northeast. He owned a sand and gravel and concrete company that he started on his own from scratch, finished high school just barely and was able to build a a successful business. So I spent every summer around him, working for him, working in the sand and gravel plant and driving around with him in his truck, going to jobs, watching him interact with his employees and lead the company. And it was a union job, pretty difficult operating and working environment. But but watching him and his work ethic and, and the way he built his business and handled himself was impactful for me. And I, and I was young. I started working there probably you know, six years old up until I graduated high school. So that was that was a big one for me, Nathan, and probably the biggest early in my career early in my life. And I would say, you know, on the the negative side, I have learned a lot from watching and being around and just absorbing what others leaders, other leaders do. And sometimes you see a lot of things that are negative or bad or ineffective. And I I really noticed those throughout my career. Why is someone treating another person this way? Why is someone maybe not giving honest answers in a big meeting and and those things those things stuck with me so watching some of the bad examples were 
almost as impactful as you know, some of the more positive and better ones. I'll give you, give you one example. I was we were on a video call with a company we owned and told them we had to close down one of their plants, a big plant. We got to lay off a bunch of workers and this was a big announcement. And, and I'm sitting with the CEO and, and I'm, I'm a finance executive at the company and the CEO's eating ice cream out of a little China bowl, like a really nice little bowl of China and a little silver spoon. I mean, it was legitimately a nice little spoon and he's eating ice cream on this video call while we're telling the company that we're going to shut down a third of their business. Uh, and I thought, wow, that's, we're not sending the right message here. That's not the right way to communicate that message. You're not showing empathy. You're not leading in the right way. That's just one, one small example, but I, I got a lot out of watching what not to do also, Nathan. Well, the reason I, I mentioned the positive or the negative was because I remember in some of our conversations that you really brought that to light for me. Uh, if you had uh, encountered some leaders that were not the kind of leaders that you wanted to be like. And, and you said something to me one time that resonated with something that my dad had said one time because he had grown up in a home where he didn't have a lot of great examples. Uh, of how to do life as a, as a husband, as a dad. His parents would grow into something, but they weren't that way when he was a kid. And, and you talked about that, uh, not so much just uh, on, really on the family side, but more on the, the leadership side of you recognized pretty early on that there are a lot of leaders who don't do it well, and they can also be great teachers. So you, you hinted at kind of where your career ends up. You, you go into finance, you are an executive and ultimately become the CEO of a, a publicly traded company. But I want to go back to your granddad, to those uh, summers in the truck, seeing how he led that company. Uh, where did you go to high school? I grew up in a suburb of Dallas, first in Dallas proper and then finished high school in a suburb called Plano, Texas. So you, you finished high school. Uh, did you like high school? You know, not really, Nathan. I was just an okay student. I probably, you know, was just an okay athlete too and didn't really have a group that I clicked with. So high school was just okay. I was ready to move on after high school though. You know, I've got uh, one that is a senior in high school and the other one is a sophomore in college. And High school is important. What you think about at that time and those things really are uh, important. But it is uh, always helpful, I think, for young people to hear stories about people who have great lives, but high school wasn't necessarily their thing. So you finish up in high school. What happens next? I went to college. I was the first in my family to go to and graduate college. I went to Texas Tech University, got a degree in finance and graduated in four years from Texas Tech and then went on to start my finance career. So to go to college, the, the first in your family is obviously a big deal. And, and then you choose finance and, and there are definitely easier topics. Why, why did you choose finance? To start with, that was not my major going into school. My, my original major was range and wildlife management. I wanted to be a park ranger and thought that I loved the outdoors. I wanted to you know, hike and camp and be in the parks and be outdoors and be in national parks. And I thought, you know, range of wildlife management and being in, you know, park service, forest service, something like that would be a good way to accomplish that. Now, when I got to school and started really researching, you know, what you do in that career, it's not as glamorous as, as I had thought, you know, you're not going to get the opening. You're not, your first assignment's not going to be, 
the director of you know, Yellowstone National Park. This is not the way it works. So uh, in doing some more research on it and determining, you know, the career path and longevity, I thought, you know what, this is interesting. I can always do this later. I can do this in my spare time. Let me look at something maybe a little more financially impactful and a little more stable. And so then I switched to finance after my in my freshman year. Today, you still go to those national parks, even if you can't be a ranger, uh, although it wouldn't just shock me if someday I woke up and you were working with the park service somehow. But when you look at the experiences that you've made a priority of, of skiing, scuba diving, surfing, things like that, you realize pretty early on in life that when you are outdoors, you're, that's, that's good for you. Speaking to that for, for leaders who might underestimate the, the impact of doing things like that. How has that impacted you as a leader to be able to spend time in national parks doing things like that? I think particularly leaders who, and leaders who are busy and in stressful times and have a lot of burdens on them, which are gonna be most leaders, certainly as you get higher in the organization, to find what it is that can calm and relax you and put you in a state of mind that allows you to be more creative and think creatively not being reacting, putting out fires, whatever that environment is. And for me, it was it was being outdoors uh, and it would just help clarify things for me, reset a little bit. I remember having some of my what I thought at the time were some of my best ideas and they were good ideas that came while I was outside and while I was decompressing and taking a little time off. So whatever that is for a leader, it may not be, you know, it may not be the national parks or outdoors for everyone, but whatever that activity or hobby or distraction is that allows you to get perspective on things and, and slow down and take some deep breaths, uh, I really encourage people, people to do that. And it took me a while to figure that out. It probably wasn't until, you know, 15, maybe 20 years into my career where I really understood the importance of that for me. Well, it's interesting because when you finished up at Texas Tech and now you're looking at where do you want to start your career, in many ways you went to, to what it would be the exact opposite of, uh, of that national park kind of um, world. So tell us about that. You, you finish up with uh, college. What, what, what's next for you? I started at a large bank in Dallas, Texas. The bank had it was one of the large money center banks and they have lending programs where they take finance and accounting majors and you go through lending training. You learn credit, you learn credit analysis, what drives companies profitability. You rotate through several departments within the bank. You settle in one group. Usually I happen to settle in the oil and gas and the, the energy group. I thought the business was, was kind of fascinating. I liked the asset nature of it. I uh, enjoyed the people in the business. So I, a couple years in my career, started focusing on oil and gas transactions for the bank from a, from a credit standpoint, you know, lending, lending money to energy companies. So you go and, and in some ways home, back to Dallas, a big city. And those who have not been to Dallas recently, it is unbelievable just the amount of growth that that city in that area has experienced over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And, and so you get that experience in Dallas, uh, you're learning a lot, then what? I got an opportunity to go to work for an investment bank and investment bank was looking for analysts, which means you're early in your career, right out of school usually, to help with their newly forming oil and gas group. 
So it was an incredible opportunity for me, not something that many people from Texas Tech get the opportunity to do. And I got a job with an investment bank in their newly formed oil and gas group and quickly moved to New York where I worked you know, on Wall Street doing investment banking for energy companies. And it was a, a fascinating time. You work 80 hour weeks routinely, but you're around very accomplished, very smart people that have been doing this for a long time. You're working with the leaders of companies, you're presenting to boards, you're doing all kinds of complex analysis. And it's really an incredible and was an incredible learning environment for me, those many years spent in New York doing energy investment banking. So if we had a time machine and we could take the James Bennett of today, the uh, father of three great kids, the guy who you are today, and, and if we could go back in time and you are starting your career, let's say you've been in Dallas for a few years and now the opportunity to move to New York has opened up. If you could have had a conversation with that version of you, what advice would you have given yourself prior to moving to New York? <laughs> well, there would be two different angles to that. One, just broadly, I would say, hey, calm down and slow down. Life's always going to be here. Work's always going to be here. Take a breath and slow down. Now, telling the 20-something the James that, I wouldn't have listened to anyone. So if I could get something to sink in, it would be something along those lines. But maybe more specifically, that my career, and I think this is true for a lot of people early in their career and throughout their career, my career is not going to be a straight path. I think there are some professions, very few, where, okay, here's your, here's your path. You do this for five years, and then you get promoted to this field, this role, and then you're in this role for 10 years, and then you make partner and so forth. But for the most part, your career is not going to be a straight path, and you can't plan that out. So focus on just consistently learning, building your experience and skill set, working with smart, accomplished, ethical people. And finally, I would say, don't worry about the title and money, particularly early in your career. That will come. Don't worry about that. And focus on the things I said earlier, you know, learning, building your experience, skill set, working with talented people, and those will come. So I, I, I would say that it's not going to be a straight path. Always learn and develop yourself. And particularly early in your career, don't worry about title and money. So now you're finding yourself in this new zone, you're hardworking, you're someone who has a growth mindset, you're always looking to find new ways of doing things and new ways to, of seeing things. And you look at that time in, in New York, what would you say that that taught you about yourself? Moving away from home and into a very competitive environment to the epicenter of the financial world, what did that teach you about yourself? It was a valuable experience. I moved to New York and I knew one person outside of my company in the entire city. So I happened to go to college with him there. So I, I, I knew one other person there. So, you know, moving to New York in your 20s and, and not knowing anyone, there's just a lot to figure out. So almost like going to college, you've got to figure a lot out about yourself and you know, how to organize your life and how to make things work functionally. That was a big piece of it. You know, I just, even renting an apartment in New York, it, you know, it is an ordeal. And so that's on the personal side. On on the professional side, I was able to really up my game and intensity and playing field just because of the people I was around. You know, if you practice with the high school football team and you're playing with the high school 1A football team, you're going to learn certain things and skills and plays and 
tactics. If you, you know, practice and play with, pick your team, the Dallas Cowboys, because uh, yeah, they're the greatest, not because they're the greatest team on the planet. It's just an example that came to mind. You're going to play at a different level. Your, your game will be elevated. And that was true about going to New York. And maybe I didn't know what I was capable of or have enough confidence in what I was capable of. But being around that group and that caliber of people, you know, some of the best finance minds really in, in, the, in the world, are in New York and were and are they still there on Wall Street? And so just to be around that group, Nathan, and to, to realize, wow, I'm I'm as capable as this group. And I didn't go to an Ivy League school and didn't get a 1600 on my SAT, but you know I can I can be competitive with this group and really do well in this business. And, and that was a that was a big moment for me to realize that. When did you realize that just as they were impacting you to help you raise your game? that you had the ability to raise the game for other people, that your way of approaching life or approaching work, other people were watching. When did you start noticing that the way that you behaved impacted the behavior of other people? It wasn't until after investment banking. So you know, I left in investment banking around the 2000 timeframe. I knew I didn't want to be a banker and a kind of an agent and an advisor for my entire career. And I, I went to a, a company moved to Houston and went to a newly formed oil and gas company. And in doing that, just as an aside, I took a big, big pay cut. And it was a little bit of a hard decision at the time, but absolutely the right thing to do. I knew I didn't want to stay in banking for my career. So to make another move into a company, I had to take a pretty sizable pay cut, which which I did. And so it took me time, Nathan, to really to get my voice. And it wasn't until I was in those roles, low management, mid-management at different companies where I realized, wow, people are, are really watching what I'm doing. And they come to me for questions and advice. And I always seem to be taking charge of certain meetings or projects or situations or handling presentations. And I don't think I sought it out as much as it maybe came to me a little bit. And then I realized, you know, okay, I'm effective at this and people need my help in certain areas. Let me, let me do what I can to help and move others along and advance the company by helping others. You know, I have had the, the privilege of working with some amazing CEOs, but when I think about you, you, <laughs> it, was, it was amazing to me to watch what you were doing, specifically in oil and gas, where the investment that people make in other people is somewhat hit and miss. And, and you took the theme that you're talking about right there of opening doors for other people, opening up opportunities for other people, serving them, giving them a, a chance to thrive. You took that to the next level. So in Houston, you start realizing that you have that capacity. When did you realize that maybe that meant that you would be in an executive role, that you would you'd be open to that? It probably wasn't until I was asked to be in an executive role. You know, I was in some, some leadership positions and on on boards and running some different you know smaller departments within the business but you know it wasn't until someone said you know hey james i want you to come be a you know, c-level executive in, in this kind of role where i said you know what i can i can do that the things that are needed in that role i've done i'm good at i like doing it it engages me I like working with a team of people. So when I had the opportunity to go be um, a C-level executive at a, at a larger company, it, it felt like the right place and right time. And, and all these years leading up to that, you know, 20 or some 20 or so years of work and, and training and organizational development and finding my way within organizations, I felt I was I was really ready for it at that time. 
The, the reason I bring it up is because I, I talked to a, a lot of leaders who, this is kind of what I was getting at before and I lost my train of thought, but you talk to a lot of leaders who find themselves in a role that might be the CEO, CFO, whatever it may be, but they really didn't think of themselves that way for a long time. And what I've observed over the years is that many of the leaders that are among the most effective leaders I know, they did not see themselves in the way that other people saw them. It was, it was almost an echo of they, they realized that other people view the, viewed them that way. And so they said, well, maybe I can do that. It was not, I can do that and I want them to catch up with me. And so I, I just want to observe that for a moment. So there you are living in Houston. And if you're in the energy sector, that's the New York of energy sectors, uh, of the energy sector, I would imagine. And then you decide to move to Oklahoma. Why did you choose to make, um, make a move to Oklahoma? You know, we, my family and I, had been in Houston for about 10 years and enjoyed it, but didn't have real ties to Houston other than some good friends we had made there. And an opportunity came up to move to Oklahoma City. And it did some research on Oklahoma City. I'd been there some on business and I enjoyed the city and thought it would be a great place to raise a young family. It's very friendly. It's a good business environment. And so the family and I made the decision, look, let, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's try this and move to Oklahoma City and change things up a little bit. So we went from you know, New York to Houston to Oklahoma City. Well, the time that you moved into Oklahoma City, for people who are listening in who aren't familiar, uh, Oklahoma City began in many ways a renaissance in the early 1990s. But a lot of what you see today began in the early 2000s with innovation that was happening in the oil and gas industry. And so you find this opportunity, you come here, you start making your life here. And in that time, you were more in that finance role. And then if we fast forward, the business that brought you here, that really, really courted you to be a, a part of this community, the leaders of that company really unexpectedly invited you to become the CEO. What is it like to get that call? It's humbling and intimidating at the same time. You know, I remember when I accepted the position, walking into work the first day after I had accepted, I think I accepted in New York and then and then came back down to Oklahoma City, I remember parking my car and, and walking from the parking garage you know, through the building and coming up the stairs and thinking, wow, I am responsible for the time we had just under 2000 employees, the health and safety and livelihood and 401k and college savings plans and so forth of you know 2000 people and their families. So the scale of that, not, I wouldn't call it a burden at all, but that responsibility, when that comes to you, you, know, you realize you're doing this a lot more than for just yourself. And, and I think if leaders do the job for the wrong reason, if you're taking this position because you want the corner office and just because of the pay and the title and whatever other perks come with that business, I think that can sustain you short term. But if you're not doing it for the people and for the organization, that won't last because there's gonna be some very, very hard times when the pay is not going to be enough, when the corner office isn't as glamorous as you thought it would be, uh, when you can't use any of the perk basketball tickets anyway because you're too busy and working all the time. You have to have another reason why you're doing this job than just the money, the prestige, and or, and or the corner office because th those will fade. What was the reason for you? 
I didn't fully understand it. I knew I enjoyed and got a lot of satisfaction. It was very motivating for me to watch others succeed, but I didn't put it in words that specifically. But I had a small employee group meeting once, and I'd just recently taken that role. And I can't remember if it was a group of interns or new employees, but it was a small group and it was either summer interns or or new employees. And there were probably 20, 30 people in the room. And someone asked me, I love it when you get these insightful questions that make you think. Someone asked me, James, what does it take to be an effective leader? And I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about the answer. I just said what came to me. And what came to me was, these were just my own words at the time, And I said, you need to care about the success of others more than yourself. Right. When I said that, I thought, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of how I've been practicing and behaving as a leader. And that's what I've done. I just haven't put in that many words. So that became very clear to me uh, as, as soon as those words came out of my mouth, that watching the success of the organization is very satisfying to me. And I remember saying at a company Christmas party once, Nothing would make me more happy or feel more successful than if many of you here in the audience were, and I think you will be, occupying the C-suites of energy companies around the world. And I really believe that. And actually, there are a couple of those folks in that room that are doing that. (laughs) So for me, if the organization could spin out and develop great leaders and managers and thinkers and populate them throughout different companies and organizations, that's a sign of one sign of success. It, and if that's the if that's the standard, then obviously the work that you did during that time and the people that were part of that team during that time should feel a great sense of satisfaction. And it, what's interesting is that you've had people who learned how to be a leader with you who are now leaders in those other oil and gas companies, but even beyond that, now you're seeing people who are in all kinds of industries who took that ability just to serve other people, to think about things strategically, to move quickly. And it's not just an oil and gas, which I find fascinating. So I want to just share one moment with you of, I didn't go to a ton of, of meetings with you when you made that transition, but I did go to one of the earliest meetings that you had early on in that transition time. And I'm not exactly sure what what it was. What we were, well, I was even there, but we were looking at the uh, we we're looking at the hundred day plan, and we were talking about what to do next. And you were just looking for a thought partner on some of that. And we walked into a meeting. It was a it was a conference room type of deal. And you walked in, and then you turned around and you and you said, uh, "Oh, I forgot to get a cup of coffee." And I'm I'm watching this because everybody. You're not. I don't think you're even aware of it. Everybody is watching you. This is one of the first moments with the new CEO who is following a legendary CEO, Hall of Fame CEO. And here you are in this new role and people are watching you to a level that I think you may not be fully aware. And you realized that you did not get your cup of coffee and you had to run back to the kitchen to get it. And you turned around and I don't even know who it was, but you looked at them and said, I'm going to get a cup of coffee. And then you said, can I get you something? That moment to me defined everything about the kind of leader you were going to be in that CEO role because it changed the room. And I don't even know that you noticed this, but it changed changed the room because the CEO on day one just said, can I get you something when I go back there to get my cup of coffee? And it to me is the definition of the kind of leader James Bennett became. And I can say this to anybody who might be listening, the company would go through a series of challenges that ultimately would make it a very different kind of company after you left. 
But I can say, having watched you over that time, that there was nothing, nothing held in reserve for you personally, that you gave people the best that you had. And it's something that I think really began in that moment when you said, can I get you a cup of coffee or can I get you something? So when you look at that idea of serving other people, some people look at that and say, well, you've got to be a really strong executive. And when you talk about serving people, that's not a, that's not a signal of strength. What do you think about that kind of philosophy that a leader can't say, can I get you a cup of coffee on my way? Yeah, and there's been a lot come out probably since then, or maybe it was out before, I'm sure it was, and I didn't pay attention to it. But, you know, this talk of servant leader, and it's obviously the great book, the good book, you know, Leaders Eat Last. So you, you've seen a, a lot, and I've read a lot more about this than I certainly had then, and it, and it really resonated it still does resonate with me, that that style of leadership. But no, I think you can absolutely be a strong leader and at the same time lead from a position of service. In fact, I think you'll find most of the successful and, and effective leaders can do that. As, as leaders and managers, we all have different tools in our toolbox that we have to use at various times. And, and sometimes those are, have a sharper edge to them and more position of strength. Sometimes they're they're quiet. Sometimes they're reflective. Sometimes they're team building. So it's just one of the many skills that you must have. But again, if the basis of why you're doing this and your job is not to help others, then I think you're going to really struggle in this business and struggle longer term, particularly when times get tough. Because there will be times when you, when you need that strength and need to be a voice and be heard and, and be firm. But there are a lot of times when you need to serve the rest of the organization and figure out how to do that effectively. When you're talking about these types of values, the, and a value would be something that you're willing to sacrifice for. I'm willing to hold to this even if it costs me something. And values tend to be something that is not aspirational. It's not something in the future. It's typically an organization's history and how they've done things. When you came in, that focus on this is who we are, these are our values, became all the more important. And, and to be fair, the company was already a values-driven culture in some ways. But how did you work to align the organization, the activities, the way that you invested in people, those types of things? How did you align what the company was doing with the core values? I think it started by just defining what that means. You know, everyone's got their own terms, you know, core values, beliefs, mission statements, but I, I kind of think of core values and cultures as integrated and just define it as kind of the norms and beliefs that govern how you behave and live within any group, any organization or group. And so if you start with that, we as the leaders of the business have to show the example. You can have all the core values on nice plaques and on people's screensavers and in the hallways, but it's how the organization, particularly leadership behaves that matters the most because people will absolutely watch what the leaders do much more so than they follow words on a value statement. So what characteristics are allowed and acceptable within the organization? What's expected of people? How are they expected to treat others? with what kind of, how do we handle the communication with employees? All those things take a long time to instill within an organization, but it starts with the senior leadership and the message they convey through the organization. And you said something which is very true. It will oftentimes, well, it will always come down to 
you will have to make some hard decisions that maybe go against some other parts of the organization or maybe even against what people think is best for the organization right then. For example, we've had very talented employees that were very, very good at the top of their game in their specific job, but they didn't match the culture. You know, if you have someone who is an incredible, or I'm just going to say engineer, it's the first thing that came to mind, best engineer you've ever had at this one discipline, but they're a bit toxic to the organization. They, they lash out at other employees. They raise their voice in meetings. They make employees cry. I'm giving some drastic examples. And this is this is just one area. But look, there's been some people that are incredible individual contributors with an organization, but bring down the culture and don't adhere to the value and do more damage within an organization. And so you have to make those hard decisions and allow them to move on to a culture where where they can thrive, even though it was a hard thing to do short term to get rid of this very talented employee at this one skill for the betterment of the culture and the long-term sustainability of the business, you have to make those hard decisions. And they're very hard and they're very unpopular. But if, it, if you don't do that, your culture will slowly erode. And if you do it, uh, your culture and values will get bolstered. And in some period of time, not months, not a year, you know, I kind of think two to three years before these things take hold and you can really change a culture of an organization, I think it takes that long. We talk about the, the price of leadership and, and the price of uh, seeing these types of things happen. And there's, I love that idea that greatness always has a price. And so being willing to make those hard choices, being willing to define this is who we are and this is how we're going to do things. I really respect that and appreciate that. But it also leads to the, the reality that a lot of what we learn is through pain and pain and failure are often intermingled. And, and I want to ask a couple questions as we wrap up our time. And I really appreciate uh, your time today. But looking at that, the two questions I want to wrap up with, one of those is connected to failure. The company that you had in mind when you were leading it for reasons beyond you, that company does not exist that way. It didn't happen. And, and it may have contributed significantly to the success of a number of individuals. But with that said, the company itself, after you moved on, began to decline rapidly. Again, not for reasons that are connected to, to really to you. But when you look back over the course of your time, you have clear wins. You, you have times where it doesn't work. You have this and that. If you could look back at a time in your life and that you think, you know, there's a, there, here's an example of a time where it did not work and that allowed me to learn something. Can you think of an example in your life where there's been a failure that led to you being able to uh, think differently or, or improve? Yes, Nick, let me, let me give you a couple. When I was a finance you know, mid-level executive, I remember we were talking about building a manufacturing plant outside the United States and we were discussing this and debating it. And I said to the CEO, look, I think we need to run some numbers to make sure that this is the right thing to do. And he said, I'm going to misquote, but something along the lines of, look, I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. This is the right thing to do and we're doing it. And I thought, okay, well, well then I guess that's right. And I was wrong and okay, let's do it. And what ended up happening was that the plant we built was, was just a disaster. It, it didn't need to happen. It was, it was over-engineered. We spent too much money on it. And in hindsight, you know, and after, after it had failed, I ended up having someone do the work and do the analysis on that manufacturing facility. It, it could never make money. Even if we filled it full 
20 hours a day. And there was too much money, too much capital investment. It was not going to generate a return. And so what I get to is, and I've learned this in a few examples, you know, asking that second and third order question, should we build the plan? Someone says, well, yeah, we should. I've done this a lot. Well, okay, I, I appreciate that. But how about I just run some numbers? Or how much throughput can we make through this plan? And what are the margins we can make in this plan? Just asking the second and third order questions instead of just taking a one or two sentence answer, which is very hard when that's coming from above you. Sometimes it's just impossible. But digging in, you know, knowing when to dig in and ask more questions as a leader and when not to is, it's an art, not a science. I never, I still don't get it right most of the time, but that's an important area for a leader, knowing when to dig in and when not to. And, and that was it's just, that's one example of wishing I had asked the second and third order questions around that $10 million investment decision we made that didn't go well. So, and that taught me dig in at times and pay attention to the details and ask a second, third order questions. I think, I think another one, Nathan, for me was talking about employees and, and messaging communicating. Don't sugarcoat hard messages to employees or don't dodge questions or don't give non-answer politician and type answers to hard or difficult, uncomfortable questions. You know, I remember getting a question once that was asking if, if layoffs were coming and I avoided the question. I you know, changed, I changed the question a little bit. I answered what I wanted the question to be. And I gave a non-answer answer. I'm looking at the audience and they're all looking at me with these like half cocked heads and their eyes are crinkled and they're thinking, what did he just say? And, and I realized I'm not being transparent as, as a leader here. I'm trying to obfuscate this issue, this elephant in the room and sugarcoat it and dodge it. And, and that's not effective. Everyone saw exactly what I was doing and I've never done it again and won't ever do it since then. So giving those hard answers when the easier thing would be to not answer or dodge it or, or, or lie about it a little bit would be the easier thing right then, but it's not, not the right thing for the organization and it doesn't communicate a culture of trust and inclusion with the rest of the team and employees. So th th those were two, Nathan, kind of digging in when you need to, and then delivering hard messages and answering hard questions to your team, even if they're uncomfortable. I appreciate that. And I've watched you, I've watched you do that. I, I've watched you tell the truth when, when uh, it would have been preferable to sidestep. And I think that's why your team trusted you uh, so much that you were willing to make the hard calls and say the difficult things because you cared. It was connected to the idea of loyalty. The, the last question for me is if you're looking to right now at the challenges that leaders are facing, we've got we're still in the, the midst of the pandemic. We've got a number of issues on social on the social front. Uh, we, we've got issues that are industry specific. These are really challenging times for leaders. If you were looking out there and you said, you know, this is what I would think would be among the, the greatest challenges facing leaders today. What would you identify as some things that are out there that people would need to be aware of? I'll probably call it three different things, Nathan. One is, these are not in the order of importance at all, but just digesting all of the information that is available. The, the amount of information available to, you know, to employees and leaders and managers is you know, 100 times, let's say the ease of accessing that information is 100 times more than it was when, when I graduated college. So knowing what information to sort through and what to digest and read and, and try to understand and what not to, that, that can be challenging because if you try to even just look at it all, 
you will be overwhelmed. That's one. The other I would say is navigating some of the Monday morning quarterbacks and armchair experts that that are around these days. And it's more so in a, a little bit more so in a public setting and when you're a little bit more visible. But but I remember saying to a group of employees once, you know, we had bloggers or certain people who were making comments about the organization and look, it's easy to to throw stones from some of those vantage points. And I remember saying to my group of employees, you know, look, don't worry about that. You know, there are a lot of people that can, you know, sit in their basement and, and type a blog in the dark and be critical of people, but they haven't been here. They haven't sat in these seats. They haven't had to make some of these decisions. And you, know, you don't even know their, their background or their education or their experience. If you want to be a, you know, an analyst at, at, at Goldman Sachs and write research reports on companies, that requires a certain amount of a skill set and, and pedigree and training and development that can take decades. If you want to sit in your basement on a blog and say mean things about companies, all you need is an internet connection and a keyboard. So distinguishing between those two can, can be challenging, particularly when you're on the receiving end of a lot of that. So I would say navigating all the armchair experts. And probably the last one, I like the term, and it was, I think it was coined by the, I think it was Army War College in the, I think it was early 90s, uh, VUCA. And I know you know, I've talked about this term before, but volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And I, and I believe they came up with it to describe their operating environment. And as I think about what's going on now with the things, Nathan, you mentioned, obviously the pandemic, the economy, election coming up, you know, many social issues we're wrestling with. That VUCA concept, I don't know that it's ever been more front and center, you know, maybe during the financial crisis, but probably not. Maybe around 9-11 to this extent, I'm not sure you could argue or not. So there, there's been some challenging times, but the volatility and uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity that leaders are dealing with now is probably greater than I've seen in my career. And so being able to keep a calm head and navigate this landscape that keeps changing every week, every month, every quarter in drastic ways is is very challenging. Leaders want to know and organizations want to know the rules and the guidelines. And, okay, those are the rules. Here's my operating environment. Let me operate within this. And when it's changing this fast and this drastically, it is very, very hard to lead and develop organizations through this. So my hat's off to the people who are leading through these organizations in this time of uncertainty right now. So, so those would be the three, Nathan, that come to mind for me. I uh, learned about coaching that you should never invest your life in someone else's life if you don't really believe that they are special, that they uh, can make things happen, that they're exciting to be around. And I would say now, having been around you for years, that James, you are one of uh, America's great leaders. And I have really enjoyed watching you as a leader to see behind the scenes that your care and concern behind the scenes is, is no different than it is when you are in, in the spotlight. And I appreciate your authenticity. I appreciate your love for your family. That has been something that has just been a driver for you. And I'm grateful that you're that kind of dad. As we wrap up the show today, I wish we had several hours with James because we just barely touched the surface here of what it means to be an effective leader. But when you're thinking about your own path and you think about what it means, there were themes that began to emerge through our conversation that I hope you will process of what it means to, to pursue a direction 
and not look at the redirection as an indication that you're on the wrong path necessarily, but that you uh, have stops and starts, that it's not a straight line, that caring about other people matters, that being consistent with your values, consistent with your communication, and open with people about where you're going uh, builds trust. James, thank you for being a part of the show today. For those who are listening in, I appreciate and I'm grateful that you're willing to be a leader. It is something that makes a difference, but there's no easy way to do it. So thank you for being a leader. Thank you for being a part of the Strata Leadership Show. Today, it's your responsibility to set the pace. So go make it a great day.